one of the things I've always heard about travel in the Philippines is, oh, this place has so much potential. Potential has been a word that I've been hearing about the Philippines for a very long time. Even when foreign writers come here and they say, oh, this Philippines has the potential of being the next it destination in the world. It never quite translates to, okay, now it's arrived. You have to know what your value is because um, if you don't put a value on yourself, nobody's going to do it for you. Here in the Philippines, you know, I think we've always spoken about the Philippines being a creative uh, hub, a creative uh, greenhouse, right? That we have so much talent in all the creative field. That's why we started Grid Magazine. Uh, to use your phrasing, we wanted to create value for the Philippines. I think what's remained invisible is the domestic tourism market. Because this recovery isn't going to start with groups from abroad coming back to the Philippines. The recovery in the Philippines is going to start with Filipinos traveling in the Philippines. That was travel photographer Paco Guerrero, and this is The Wildcast. Welcome to episode 8 of The Wildcast, and today we talk to Paco Guerrero. He's a good friend of mine, an amazing travel photographer, and one of the founding members of Grid Magazine. I've known Paco for a while now. We've traveled together. We've practically lived together for 10 days during the Grid Expedition, traveling across the entire Cordillera, and you really see the passion for photography. He doesn't just shoot while he's working. He's shooting all the time. Whether he sees something when you're driving, you see his eyes just wandering around, looking for the next great shot, appreciating everything around you and just looking at everything with wonder, even if at some point he's seen all of these things. But every single time you look at him, he sees all of these wonderful views, the people, the environment, the culture, and he sees them with fresh eyes all the time. And that's something I've learned to appreciate working with him, traveling with him. And he's someone who has basically traveled the world through his photography. He's uh, one of the travel photographers in the Philippines. He's done a lot of work all over the world for a lot of different companies. He has traveled the Philippines extensively in areas that were previously not tourist destinations. He's been, I think, crucial in developing some of these tourist destinations, including places like Siargao, um, even here in the Cordillera. Our work benefits a lot from Paco's work, working with us with Grid Magazine. He's one of the founders of Grid Magazine. and. Just that alone is quite amazing. Grid magazines like a, this great magazine that really talks to the soul of Philippine travel. And it talks to the Filipino, the common Filipino, about what's out there, what's to be found across the nation. These little hidden gems that um, you'll find all across the country. And Grid Magazine is one of those magazines that goes out there, finds those stories, and tells those stories. So today we talk to him about photography, his life of photography, and of course, COVID-19 and how he and his industry is responding to it. And also, of course, travel. How travel needs to adapt to this new normal of COVID-19. How 
there is so much opportunity for the Philippines to grow because of this. So much for sustainable travel, so much for more meaningful travel and not so much travel with uh, large groups of, uh, of tourists and finding all of these places, th these hidden gems that he spent practically his whole life working for, looking at, taking photos of. And it's really interesting. It was a really interesting podcast for me. I've known Paco for years and I've traveled with him, as I said. We've been in the mountains for days. We practically smelled like each other at some point. And this is interesting discussion. I learned a little bit more about him. He has been taking photos since he was 12 and he hasn't stopped being amazed at the world around him. So this is Paco Guerrero and this is his story. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be tough I think this the rest of this year 2020. Yeah, and probably till maybe the first half of 2021. I mean, it's not it's not something it doesn't look rosy and uh no, not at all. You know, for the advertising industry or any any industry for that matter at this point i think i think there's i think clients are looking for solutions as well because the clients still want to yeah they still need to advertise yeah for yeah. sure they still need to advertise but then uh you know it also depends on what people are willing to spend on at the moment and and yeah. i don't know i think once like for Greta, we know all our clients are saying, you know, hold on, we're not sure if we're continuing because, you know, once we get back to work after the 15th, hopefully we still have to, we still have to see where's our cash flow, where do we, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what everyone is looking at now. I mean, it's, what are we spending on? What are we not going to spend on? It's it's really survival. Everyone just needs to survive till. 2021 maybe third quarter 2021 and then mm. you know that's just sort of hibernate and survive i think that's the strategy yeah. for for this year thank you for coming on my podcast and uh you know you're an interesting guy we've talked a lot over the years and i think a lot of people would be you know they would benefit from your years of experience and years of essential photography and uh, commercial work, as well as your own personal work. You know, I mean, a lot of the stuff you do is also really, really brilliant stuff. And I think uh, a lot of people, at least the uh, 27 people who are currently subscribed to my <laughs> Spotify channel, uh, would benefit from listening to. Know Paco Guerrero and his whole life story. Yeah, wow. Thanks. You make me sound really old for some strange reason. But yeah, uh, I'm getting on. Not old, just experience. You know, there, there is a value to that. Sure, 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 sure. So, as a short introduction, can you maybe give us a short introduction about yourself? I know, of course, I know you, of course, but I, I know a lot of my listeners won't know who Paco Guerrero is. As expected, um, I'm Paco Guerrero. I'm a photographer and director now. Um, I started shooting at a very young age when I was 12. Uh, the interest started then and I looked for opportunities. I assisted for photographers, 
on the weekends when I was still in school. That led to university in Santa Barbara studying photography. And it's, it's been image-based work ever since. Um, a few years ago when I moved back to the Philippines, I was involved in a show called What I See, which was a travel photography show here that ran for five seasons on CNN Philippines. And um, I'm also one of the founding members of Grid Magazine, uh, which is a travel publication focusing on Philippine destinations. Right, right. So you, you've basically been doing photography your whole life. I mean, you've had the 12 years that you've not done photography and the rest of your life has been all about photography. It's, it's, it's revolved around that. Yeah, that's that's pretty much been it. Uh, obviously, in the high school, the, the high school days, I started as a, you know, as a hobbyist on the weekends. I, I really got into bird photography for a while, but I was, you know, I was fourteen, fifteen. So the only place my parents would allow me to go was to like the zoo. So I'd go to the zoo with the big lens and take pictures of ducks and birds, and um, which actually led to an interest in falconry. So I ended up in the UK at the British School of Falconry. Uh, I did like a one and a half month falconry course there, which led to a part-time job at the Jurong Bird Park in Singapore for a couple of summers. So, you know, it, it's been interesting. It's been fun. Yeah. And, and it seems like, I know you're Spanish, but you've lived in many, many different cities, including my own. You've lived in Baguio, I think, for a short time, maybe. Yeah. And could you yeah. tell me about this whole life of moving around the... Uh, Different cities, different countries around the world. Well, my, my father is was in is in hotels. He's retired now. He lives in Madrid. But because he was in hotels, we, we had to move around quite often because of the nature of his job. So I was born in Manila. My father's Spanish. My mother's Filipina. And when when my father moved here, the first job he got was at the now extinct Pines Hotel in Baguio. So I actually spent the first. I, from birth to about five or six years old, we lived in Baguio, just off of uh, Pines Hotel, sort of in the staff housing, the staff flat they had there. Um, wow, that's amazing. I mean, Pines Hotel is its such an iconic <laughs> hotel here in Baguio. It doesn't exist anymore, but even in the stories, it's an iconic hotel. Yeah, uh, I only know it really from the stories and a bit of the memory, but I remember where, where Session Road ends now. It used to be a hill just full of pine trees. And the hotel was in the middle of that pine forest. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I, I guess I'm an adopted Baguioenio. Well, how do you say someone from Baguio? Uh, I'm not quite sure, actually. <laughs> Tagabagio, but... Uh, Tagabagio, there you go. But yeah, but it's nice to be able to share, you know, a hometown with you. It's a, it's a city I grew up in my entire life. And when you were here, I mean, I think earlier than I was, I think. Yeah, I'm older. Yeah, <laughs> definitely older. <laughs> and uh, through all this travel, is it, I mean, a lot of your work now is mainly travel photography, right? And did, do you think the, the influence of traveling around with your father was something that actually brought you into this industry? Yeah, for sure. So... As, as my father uh, sort of moved around in his job, we ended up living in several cities around Southeast Asia, Bangkok, Kuala Lumpur, and Singapore mainly, sort of bouncing around those three cities. And um, 
my father was also the one who lent me his camera. So the first roll of film I ever shot was on my, my father's camera. I borrowed it from him and I took pictures of chickens because we had chickens in the backyard. So ever since then, the camera really for me uh, became my, my companion, you know, because if we were moving around once every year and a half, once every two years, so, you know, you'd have to change your set of friends every two years. You'd be the new kid in town. You really didn't know a city. And photography was my way of getting to know the city. I'd go out on the weekends, go for a walk. You know, the usual uh, target places, markets, street markets, the Chinatown, Little India and Singapore. I just wander around those areas and, and take pictures. So that, that was the way I'd, I'd get to know a city a little bit and feel feel comfortable, you know. Right, right, and and like growing up, getting into you know looking at photography as a career, a lot of, I mean here in the Philippines, you know, a lot of parents don't really see that as a real career. You know, it's not it's not something like being a doctor, or lawyer, or teacher, or an engineer where there's a whole career path there open to you, and. Were your parents supportive of you getting into photography as a career in going was, into it? Yeah, I was I was lucky in that my, my parents did did support me in, in my decision. When I was on my senior year in high school, I was living in Singapore uh, by myself. I was renting a room and, and that's where I had to make the decision. I remember the same week I'd applied to I had applied to flight school in Florida to become a pilot because that was also my one of my interests. And I got the acceptance letter from that university in Florida. The same week, I got the acceptance letter to Brooks, which is the film and photography school in Santa Barbara. So that was a bit, that was a tough week for me. I didn't know should I should I go the pilot route? Should I continue with photography? And again, luckily enough, my parents said, you know what, whatever, whichever one you decide, we'll we'll support you all the way. I remember. What really helped me make the decision was uh, during a lunch break at the canteen in school, I had this phone number for who, a photographer named R. Ian Lloyd. And he was probably at the time, I'm talking about the mid nineties, one of the best photographers working in Southeast Asia. You know, he'd shoot stuff for National Geographic. He had a lot of books. He was just super famous. And I found out that he'd gone to Brooks years before. So out of the blue, uh, someone gave me his phone number. Out of the blue, at, at, during a lunch break, I put, I still had coins, you know, payphone, no cell phone. Right, right. I, I put those coins in and I called him out of the blue and he said, hi, Mr. Lloyd, my name is Paco Guerrero. Uh, a common friend gave me your number. I just wanted to ask you, you know, a few questions. And, and he was very honest. He's like, look, you know, go to Brooks if you can. It's a great learning experience. But when you get out, assist as much as you can. There's no one way to do it. Um, and it's a really tough business to make money off of. He was very honest, but again, he said, you know, um, he'd been doing it for many years and, and it's possible to do. It's just not a traditional career path uh, in any way, shape or form. Right, right. Well, cold calling a famous photographer in high school, that's, I mean, that's incredibly brave of you to do. Oh, I, I was I was at a dead end, man. I really had no idea um, what, what I was gonna do. So yeah, he. I don't know if if you'll remember that, but I'm sure he gets a lot of cold calls. But it did really help me sort of solidify and say, okay, this is what 
you know, what makes me happy and and I haven't looked back. Right. And and after college, was it did you follow his advice? Did you go for apprenticeships with different photographers or did you start did you start like finding those jobs immediately? Well, I was throughout high school I was assisting photographers on the weekends. So I was coiling cables, carrying lights, buying coffee, buying film for Luca Tetoni and SC Sheka, who were photographers in Malaysia and Singapore. So by the time I left college, one of the photographers I'd assisted for SC Sheka in KL, uh, he was kind enough to offer me a job. He said, hey, why don't, if you move to KL, you can be assistant number one here at the studio. And that's how it started. I spent a year and a half as his assistant, eventually moving up to second photographer to the studio, doing mostly commercial work. Uh, food. My the first big project I worked on was like a Kenny Rogers Roasters in-store catalog stuff. You know, mm. so yeah, that year and a half taught me a lot, and and assisting and working for Sheka taught me the business of photography, uh, the technicalities and the craft of it. You can pick up on your own or from school or now from YouTube University, but I think. The hardest thing to learn is the business side of photography. And I'm, I was lucky enough that he was very open about that information and teaching you, you know, how much you're worth, what your skill set, your talent level is worth in the market and how to charge for that. Right, right. I think that's something that a lot of um, photographers also don't take note of is it's really the how to do the business. There's a lot of real talent. I mean, all over the world, there's a lot of real talent. In the Philippines, we have a lot of talent, but the business side of doing photography is often, is often a missed uh, knowledge. It's, it's like a schooling that you need to get in order to actually do this for a living. Yeah, and it's, and it's not one lesson and you're done, you know? I mean, the, the business of photography, when I started to the business of photography that is today is incredibly different. So it's constantly evolving and changing and you're having to figure, figure it out. And it's, it's, it's an important part of it because if you want to continue being a professional, you have to be profitable. And that's always, that's always a struggle for someone who has to do both creative decisions and business decisions uh, together, you know, on the same projects. Right. Right. And, is there anything from that time that you still use today? Any of those lessons from that time in Malaysia that, that you still use today in terms of running a photography business? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, when I was studying in Santa Barbara, I had the chance to assist for quite a few number of photographers. You know, And one of the things is that you get to see people's work style. There are some photographers who like to shout. There are some photographers who are very quiet. There are some photographers who are funny, you know, all sorts. It depends on the person. And one of the things that I, I really learned from, from school and from, from my time in Kale as an assistant is that this is a collaborative effort always. So it really is about a team. And I try and work closely with, with my core team members and almost have, um, you know, almost have a second sense for each other when we're on set. So we're not having, we don't even have to talk anymore. We, we kind of know what each person in the crew has to do. Um, and also, more importantly, that the image has, has value, you know, and, and you have to price yourself properly and you have to know what your value is because you have to know what your value is because um, 
if you don't put a value on yourself, nobody's going to do it for you. And that that's the struggle, you know, to get it right, right. What the market can support, um, and at the same time, what you need to, to, to be self-sustaining as a business. Right. I'm sure that's a difficult thing for a lot of photographers, like putting a value to your work and how much, uh, I mean, how much your work is worth to other people and finding that balance. And is there any tip that you can, like, you can give to photographers on how to actually properly value their, their own work or their collaborative work? That's a tough one. Um, there was... 30 years ago, there was a very clear formula. You know, at least the way I was I was taught is that you're the agency, the client, you ask them, okay, what's the media buy of this image? The media buy being, what is that client gonna, gonna spend to buy print pages, billboards, uh, and signages? Let's say, oh, we're spending a million, a million pesos to buy all these platforms to put this image on. Okay, if it's a million pesos, then as a photographer, you charge 5% uh, of the media buy or 10% of the media buy. So basically, you're, you're not charging a client for your time. You're charging the client for your skill and for the usage of it. So let's say one picture that's only going to be in five billboards is obviously going to be charged less than one image that's going to go around the world on 100,000 billboards, right? Right. So there's a proportionality. But that's the way it was done 20 years ago. These days, you know, with the thing with a billboard is that it only lasts a month or two, and then it's torn down and something else replaces it. Today, clients are advertising on the web, and an image on the web is forever. <laughs> it's, That's true. It's not going to go away. You know, even if they take it off their site, that image is, is going to exist on the web forever in various forms. So that media buy that media buy formula is is changing, I, 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 and I'm still searching as well to see how charging uh, for images uh, based on usage is, is is viable or not, depending on the client. Right, right. So it's really finding that like it's it's walking a tightrope of balance, and looking for that uh, that balance between how much you're worth and what the client is willing to pay. Yeah, look, I wish I wish I could be like a lawyer, you know, and say, hey, I charge uh, 10,000 pesos an hour. And, and right, right. <laughs> that, would, that would be great, you know. Um, I, I, but then, then it works. For photographers who do charge on an hourly basis, and I know they're out there, I, when the young guys come and ask me, how, should I charge them per hour, per day? And I said, that's not really a good model because if you're a very skilled photographer and it only takes you 30 minutes to do this perfect shot that the client needs, then you're out money. You know? That's right. If you, if you don't know what you're doing and it takes you two days, then you've actually made more money than the better photographer. Right, right. It makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're not paying for a photographer's time. You're paying for their skill, right? You're trying, to, you're trying to deliver the best image to your client in the quickest, most efficient way possible. That's right. And is there a, throughout your, your life, you know, is there a, a piece of work that you would say launched your career? Is there, was there a project where it was the project that made you the Paco Guerrero? <laughs> I don't know about that, the, I mean, in the beginning of it, but there, 
When I was just, uh, I had just moved to Spain. I was about, I was in my early 20s. I was about 22, 23. Um, I was trying to get my foot in the door in the photography business in Spain. And a legendary journalist who happened to be uh, a friend of the family gave me a number. Hey, call this photo editor at a magazine called Viajar, which was at the time Spain's best travel magazine. I said, call this guy, tell him I gave you his number and tell him he's got to see your work. So, you know, a little bit of nepotism there, a little bit of using connections. I called this guy, his name was Cesar. And he said, yeah, sure, sure, kid, bring your portfolio and come, come see me. And I get into this, uh, his office is huge. You know, it's uh, one of the biggest editorial houses in Spain. I go up to his office and he's this bearded guy in his late 50s, famous for being incredibly grumpy. And I sat down and the first thing he tells me is, you know what, the only reason you're sitting there in front of me is because our friend Manu told me to see you. Otherwise, I wouldn't even take your call. So already immediately he set the tone of the meeting going, hey, look, kid, you better, you know, this is a favor from a friend. So I showed him my portfolio and I guess, I guess he was, he was quiet saying, okay, I see what you're doing. He's like, oh, you speak English, you travel. All right, okay, well, th thanks so much. Leave me your number and we'll, well, we'll give you a call if something comes up. So yeah, of course, I left that meeting going, wow, this is, this is horrible. You know, it felt really terrible about the whole thing. And two days later, he calls me and says, hey, we have an assignment to, to do a travel story in St. Martin, which is a, a Dutch protectorate in the Caribbean. It's going to be a 12-day travel story. You're going to be going with a veteran writer. Um, this, is your, this is your chance. So let's see, let's see how you do. Don't fuck up. And so that was it. I, I went, did the 12 days, shot an incredible amount of film. And that was my first cover, my first real magazine cover was from that assignment. And you made the cover on your first assignment. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was so much about merit of the photograph. I think because it was the biggest story in that issue, they really needed to have a cover from that from that destination. So it ended up being my, one of my pictures. Thank, thank goodness. Uh, that was it. And, and, and that, that after that was run, um, that, that was a, ten, a very successful, very happy 10 year relationship with Thessar, the photo editor and Viajar, the magazine. I ended up, you know, they ended up sending me all around Spain to do stories. I went to Tahiti, France, more Caribbean destinations, uh, Costa Rica, Latin America. So those 10 years working for Vihar and for Cesar, he became really a great mentor for me as far as a growth of, as a travel photographer um, and really pushing me every time. Uh, you know, I'd come back with a fresh set of film from a trip and be saying, no, you've been, you've been shooting the same style again and again. You know, you stop doing this. You should look for something else. I want you to surprise me the next time you go out. And it, it became a real mentor relationship with Thessar, um, who who really taught me how to be a, a, a travel photographer. And that really launched, because up to now, you're still a travel photographer. I mean, most of your work is travel photography, right? Yeah, it's based on the travel industry. So editorially, I'll shoot for Condé Nast, Travel and Leisure, for Grid, for Smile. But commercially, I, most of my clients are related to the travel industry. So mainly hotels and resorts, um, spas, 
I do lifestyle campaigns for them. So yeah, there's there's an element of travel in everything in everything that I do. You know, years ago I opened a studio in Barcelona with two other partners and I was never there. I mean, they they loved me because I'd still pay my half of the rent. They'd they'd only see me like three times a month maybe. So I I quickly realized I wasn't a studio guy, that I was a a location on the road kind of photographer. And how are you seeing, like, I mean, travel photography, much of your work obviously is uh, with the travel industry. And right now with this virus going around, I mean, it's basically shut down the entire travel industry. And how are you seeing your industry and how are you going to adapt to, to this new new normal yeah everything is, is is absolutely shut down I've got I've got a client who just emailed me this morning and said hey look our, our planned event that's going to be happening at the end of August is confirmed it's canceled so people are looking already the travel well, from what I understand the travel industry is looking at the rest of 2020 and and writing it off I, I think um, I got an email from an international travel magazine saying, hey, we're searching for stock images for the cover of the next issue because we're, you know, we can't send it, any photographers anywhere. So if you have any stock stories, just, just send them our way. Yeah, it's tough. I have a lot of colleagues, a lot of photographers and, and people who own resorts who are trying to be productive. They're using this time. You know, I know resorts here that are using their kitchens to, to cook food and, and donate to to the poorer areas of their of their provinces or of their cities, um, people are trying to be as positive as, as possible. But I think the, the biggest difficulty is going to come over the next six months. You know, because even if the quarantines are lifted, as we're seeing from other parts of the world, people are still aren't aren't uh, up to you know going out, going on vacation. People are still cautious. The economy is not going to bounce back in a week, you know. It's gonna it's gonna take a little bit. And as as uh, as I'm a photographer working in the marketing and advertising side, we all know that marketing and advertising are, are the first budgets to be cut. You know, they're non they're non non essential. They're non essential parts of of a of a company's budget. It's non revenue generating part of a of a company's budget. So there's a lot of uncertainty. But at the same time, there might there might be opportunity. You know, if, if we think back to the shutdown of Boracay two years ago, it's basically what's happened to the globe now. And I guess it's it's time for the travel industry to rethink um, and study how things can be done differently. Right, right. And um, but particularly, I mean, with your job as a as a photographer, as a videographer, and I mean, you're probably going to expect much, much less work over over the next six months to one year. Um, what are you planning? What What's your personal plans in terms of responding to this? That's a good question. And it's something I've been discussing with colleagues from Grid, with other colleagues from the advertising and the production industry. And I think people are just trying to be as creative as possible, you know, um, Either for the photographers who are shooting in studio, it's a little bit easier. Uh, I know one photographer is setting up her studio in her house now. So she's able to continue shooting for her food clients, but, you know, keeping everything at home. 
for someone like me where I necessarily have to go out somewhere and film or shoot, it's, it's going to be a very tough next six months at least. I'm not quite sure. I don't know. My wife says uh, maybe I should do more portraits locally or uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to see what can be done. Um, Are you looking at um, your, I mean, obviously you've been shooting for a very long time and you have this large stock of photographs and are you not looking at this as a resource which you can use so I mean you know essentially to tide you over this this slow period um, you know as as stock imagery goes that market has has the floor has fallen under that market there's 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 no viable stock image business unless you specifically shoot for it and you're producing a large volume of images just because to buy an image online now is very, very cheap, which, which is good. You know, people have more access to great imagery, but for photographers relying on stock imagery, that's a lot, that's a lot harder to pull off now. And I've never been in the stock game. Um, there's the print route. I know photographers who are selling, who are doing online sales of their prints. In fact, uh, the shelter fund is, a uh, is one version of that. It's been organized by Jason Kibilan. Almost a hundred Philippine photographers were donating six uh, images each, which you can purchase. And all the the majority of the proceeds from that will go to a communal fund that'll be distributed among all the photographers as a way of helping. Because it's nice, nice. And and where can they where where can people buy these images? Um on Instagram, you have to go to Shelter Fund. And you'll see it's actually become probably the most important collection of Philippine photography I've ever seen. And I know... Yeah, I've seen some of the photos and they are really, really brilliant. Yeah, it's... The, I, you know, the, we were, you were asking me earlier on about the new generation and there are there is a lot of talent out there. And here in the Philippines, you know, I think we've always spoken about the Philippines being a creative uh, hub, a creative... Uh, greenhouse right that we have so much talent in all the creative fields filmmaking illustration photography filmmaking and uh, you know uh, hopefully we're not just known for bpos and bogos i think the the creative powerhouse that's here in the philippines could become an industry in of itself and i know that the creative industry has organized itself to try and become a lobby group for for assistance or better collaboration from the government oh definitely definitely and and i think it employs quite a large volume of Filipinos. I think it's something that's, uh, that really isn't talked about, but the creative industry from, from the film industry to photographers to, I mean, you know, your industry, because, you know, Candy is also in the same industry. And I see how many people actually work for them. And it's, it's, it's unusual that they're not normally counted when it comes to, you know, how many people benefit from this industry. Yeah, that's true. I think, I think, I think, I don't know the number. Again, I don't know the numbers. I don't know if the numbers exist. Uh, I think each industry, maybe the illustrators, the advertisers, the filmmakers, they each have statistics focused on their industry. But I think as a whole, um, I think it's very large, especially counting on freelancers, you know, who are doing incredible illustration work from their house and selling it online or selling it to clients abroad. Uh, right, it's right. Huge. It's a huge. It's a huge sector here that, you know, I think it would be great if it could get more support and more visibility 
um, you know, you, I, I travel around and the, the number, the number of times you run into Filipino creatives in advertising agencies all over the world, we're, we're everywhere, you know, we're everywhere. So I think within the industry, people know that, you know, you come to the Philippines to look for talent. Right. And I think one thing that's really missed out in the Philippines is that you create this rolling value is, I don't know how, how I would call it, but I call it rolling value. And when you photograph a place, you create a value for a place that once had no value. Like for instance, you travel to a lot of different places and some of these places aren't popular. They are, they have no tourists. And once you photograph it, once you shoot the videos and all of these things, you create this value for the place that just, you know, keeps on giving for all of these areas. And that's something that's missed out on when thinking about creatives. You know, that's, you've, you've said it really well. That's, that's why we started Grid Magazine. Uh, to use your phrasing, we wanted to create value for the Philippines. We didn't want travel in the Philippines to just be about Boracay, drinking rum and gin on the beach and, and partying. You know, there's so much more value here that's present. And that, that's what Grid is about. It is... Uh, again, to use your words, so that when travelers go somewhere, they see the value that the place has. Right, right. And now talking about grid, now let's talk about grid a little bit. And how did that come about? How did the grid magazine, it's a very unique magazine in the Philippines. I think it's probably the only kind of magazine that exists locally of its kind. I don't know if of any other magazines with the same kind of theme writing or photography uh, locally? Well, we've, we've been, comp- a phrase that I've heard used about, oh, you're the, you're the travel magazine, you're the travel version of Rogue, right? Right, <laughs> right. When Rogue was around. And, and Rogue was very groundbreaking because they did take a very unique look at the Philippines. You know, they have these great pieces on the history of Manila society from the 50s and 60s and 70s that nobody else would do great profile, insightful pieces. So, you know, they, they go in and find this, this talent, this rich narrative of urban Philippine life that nobody else was looking at. That's what we're trying to do for travel. You know, and Grid started as a conversation between myself and Christine Fonacher. We were on assignment for another travel magazine based abroad. Um, and we had a long drive to Anilao. The first time I, I'd met Christine, and by the time we arrived in Anilao, we'd agreed that uh, on a couple of key points that there were no Philippine magazines that were doing Philippine stories properly. And when I, when I say properly, I'm not saying there weren't any Philippine travel magazines. There were. But the majority of them were putting foreign destinations on the cover of the magazine. They put Paris, Dubai, whatever. Um, it was a time, I think, when those magazines were still catering to a readership and an advertising base before travel really became something the middle class had access to. So before travel was something for the elite only. Hence the destinations, Paris, Los Angeles, New York, right? All these destinations that, you know, the elite members of our society have access to. But back in 2012, 2011 with low cost airlines, a larger majority of our population had access to travel. And of course, the most logical place to go to was the Philippines because it was a lot more cost effective. And there were no magazines that were, that were looking at it at that, that way. 
that was the start of Grid. So Christine and myself, we sat down. It took us a year and a half to come out with the first issue. We have other partners, Natu Garte, creative director, Sunny Takur, photo editor, Miguel Nashensender is our president and in-house food photographer. Uh, and we followed the model of doing long form stories. So our stories go anywhere between 15 and 20 pages. Uh, we take our time on the destinations. So when we're on location, it's anywhere between five days to 10 days for a story. We're really trying to look for the narrative behind the headlines, if you want to say it in that way. So we're trying to tell a long form story that is almost background information for the traveler to know before they go there. So we don't have bucket lists. We don't have top 10 hotels, top 10 restaurants, you know, all that stuff you can find online anyway. We're going to tell you about the story of why this place is becoming what it is, where it's coming from, where it's heading towards. Right. And, and you guys also have this knack of finding stories and people who are, you know, a little, a little bit below the radar and telling those stories. I mean, I, I was on grid uh, a couple of times and you've told my story, obviously. The first topless cover of grid, yes. Right, right, yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that. And, but you've, you've had this culture of featuring, I mean, essentially non-models on the covers and, and on this, and in the in the raw environment where they work and where they play or wherever it is that they are, I mean you've featured families, you've featured you know surfer dudes in in Shargao, people who would not not normally be on you know on the the regular magazines or make it to the media circuits and all of that and and you've you've gone to see all these stories, you've gone to see all of these. I mean, you were in Shargao before Shargao was even what it is today, right? I mean, you, yeah. you guys were doing the stories there. That's true. We, we, we are proud of the fact that we... There's not, I have nothing against celebrities. I photograph celebrities also. But right, right. I, I think, again, to go back to that great word that you used earlier is value. You know, we see... We want to give the Filipinos value. And, you know, we were the first... We're the, only mag we're the only magazine to put uh, a sama or a bajau, you know, a bajau, which, which is a derogatory term in the Philippines, a bajau on the cover, the imam. And, you know, he's now starred in HBO documentaries and he's, he's an incredibly famous freediver. And that's what we're always looking for. I mean, we photographed you, JP, a leap you on top of a mountain. Uh, right. You've created so much value for me as well. <laughs> I have to say. You know, as uh, when you, Nowadays, the, the word storyteller is 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 ba is bandied around left and right. I mean, oh, I'm a storyteller. I'm a content creator. But ultimately, you know, I think that our mission, my mission as a photographer and, and the team at Grid, our mission as storytellers is to give value to other people in other places. That's the job, not to give value for ourselves, but to say, hey, look, world, this person, this story, this place. This is valuable because it's cultural heritage, because it's about conservation, because it's about a new way of experiencing travel. And that's our job is to help share that story. And that's what gives it value. I mean, you can publish the top 10 restaurants in Boracay to eat, but how much value are you giving the traveler really other than a little guide? 
you know. So we're we're really trying to, as you said, we're really trying to not 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 because we want to be the first and the only exclusive, but we really, honestly, if you sit down with any of us, we really believe in the stories that we we write about, and we think that the more people know about it, uh, the more benefit that these places can have uh, in, in the long term. Right, and and how difficult has it been to? Essentially, you started a magazine in a time when print magazines were starting to lose its luster. I mean, <laughs> your main competitors are all now on digital. Yeah. And how, how difficult is it to, you know, survive as a magazine nowadays? You know, it's, it's a real struggle. We've, you know, we're sad to see Summit Media, for example, which is the behemoth of Philippine print media has, has gone fully digital. And, you know, it's a, it's a business decision. Um, I think print media has transformed now from a platform for information, for uh, advertising, which is what it was since its inception. It's now become a luxury item, almost. You know, print publications are becoming collectible items. If you want to right. your information, you go to the web. You go to your phone. Um, a print publication just for information only is, uh, is useless. So we're trying to make our, our magazine something you want to hold, something you want to keep, something you want to put on the shelf uh, and go back to maybe two, three years from now. And, you know, the stories that we have there are still valid. You know, the stories we did from five years ago, the information in there is still very useful because it's about background, it's about history, it's about... Um, change. It's about, you know, these archetypal characters uh, that you meet when you're traveling. And that's universal and that's, and that's timeless. But it's been... Right, definitely, definitely. It's been very difficult because, you know, advertisers are spending their money on new platforms and it costs money to send a photographer and a writer to uh, Baguio to shoot JP Alipio for five or six days. You know, that, all, all that costs money. So we, we're trying to we're trying to see how we can still create this content, this product, this artifact that is Grid Magazine, um, and make it financially viable. One of the ways we found that we can do that has been by creating uh, unique content for advertisers. So right now, uh, the past two issues of Grid have only had one advertiser in the whole magazine. So we don't sell print ads anymore. That it's not something that anybody's interested in buying. What we're selling is creating the content and creating a story for a brand. So let's mm-hmm. say Toyota, who sponsored, who was a sponsor for the last issue, um, we created, we looked at Toyota and said, hey, look, Toyota's about the four-wheel drive. It's about the pickup. So we created a bunch of content that doesn't necessarily show a Toyota product in it but it's about that spirit of adventure and four-wheel driving. Um, so the content of the magazine is, is around that idea. And yes, one of the articles at the front of the book, and it's clearly labeled as ad- advertising partnership, has a Toyota in it. It's about a specific Toyota product. Uh, we right. created video content. We created online content all around this idea of adventure. <clears throat> And it's great that, that the brand managers are now looking and saying, hey, look, we have billboards and, and print, ad, print ads and newspaper to do the hard sell. 
you know, that this is a car, this is how much it costs, this is a discount, buy it. But at the same time, you know, companies are looking to, to develop their brand story as a whole. And that's a whole different way of telling that story. And I think Grid, that's where we step in, where we can expand uh, how you're telling the story of your brand. And we're, we've been lucky enough to find clients who see eye to eye with us on that and are able to sort of back us financially and say, okay, go tell these stories. We, we, you know, we, we're, like, we're partnering to do this. So even the relationship between magazine and advertiser has changed completely. Before you just call, I want to I want to buy a page of ads. It's this much. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Now it's a much more collaborative, in depth process. Right, right. And I think like your earlier, the earlier iteration of Grid Magazine being long form and looking at all those stories really prepared you to go down this route of more collaborative, more in depth. Essentially, it's like a long form story that revolves around all the brands that you work with now yeah no that that's true i think i think because we always have been about uh telling long-form stories we have a unique we're in a unique position i think in the print publication world that it's a natural progression for us uh to do it um and I think the key too has been with our sales team and our creative director nachi have been very 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 smart about which advertisers we try to partner with. We're not going to be a platform for every ad for every company. It's just not going to happen. But there are companies who do understand that long form, that that longer story that really creates a sense of brand identity. And those are the ones we're looking for and we're trying to partner with. Right, right. And now, like for coming into this again, you know, um, COVID-19 and, of course, all the companies have essentially probably lost their advertising budgets. How is Grid planning to respond to this? Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a really, really tough one for, for that. To be honest, we've, we've had to put uh, the team on furlough. So we, we've shut down for now. We didn't, want, we didn't want to expose anybody in the office to to any unnecessary infections and two we want we want people to be to be safe in their homes and we're we're in a holding position right now to be honest we're waiting to see how clients come back from the enhanced quarantine um, where their priorities are and we want to be there again to help them tell the stories that need to be told uh, there's a lot of interesting ways that I'm seeing other companies and other creative agencies use digital media right now to tell their stories. Um, it's just a wait and see. It's going to be, it's going to be tough, but for us, we've had a long, we've had a five-year relationship already with, with a lot of Philippine destinations, you know, Shogao, La Union, with yourself. So we have these friends and colleagues and subjects that we've featured from around the Philippines. I think, as soon as we can, we want to tell the story of the recovery from this, because this is a major blow to the travel industry in the Philippines. And I'm right. And I don't want to just say the industry, this is human lives. This is people's lives, people's livelihoods. So we want to be part of helping that recovery happen in any way we can. 
Right. And telling those recovery stories is really important as well. And I think mm, yeah. you're, you're in the perfect position to, to start telling those stories, especially for the travel industry. That's, I mean, the travel industry now is practically zero. Yeah. I live in Baguio. All our hotels are empty. We have, I don't know, 20,000 beds here and they're all empty. This is the peak season and none of them have any clients. So it's, it's really a huge blow to the, to the whole industry. Right. Now, the, now the question is, um, how, how do you recover? Uh, how long will the recovery take? And does it mean a re-examining of how we position ourselves as a travel destination internationally? You know, for the longest time, whenever you, you talk about tourism in the Philippines, it's always, it, it was always an interesting, oh, how many foreign visitors have we gotten? That number was always very scrupulously looked at. Oh, 5.2 foreign visitors this year, 5.2 million. We're going to aim for 6.2 million. Always foreign visitors, right? I think what's remained invisible is the domestic tourism market. Because mm-hmm. This recovery isn't going to start with groups from abroad coming back to the Philippines. The rec- oh, that's for sure. Yeah, The recovery in the Philippines is going to start with Filipinos traveling in the Philippines and spending their pesos here. And I think that that story should, be, should really be told. And I think if we start focusing on our domestic tourism market, really understanding it, getting that information out there, um, I think that could only be a positive thing. Right. And I think this is really a time for being able to reboot the entire industry. I mean, let, let the bad stuff die out and, you know, allow innovation. There's going to be a lot of innovation happening. There's going to be a lot of new ideas coming out, out of this. And I think we should allow that space to really sort of grow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the sector you're, you're involved in, uh, you know, the outdoors, you know, if you want a, a tourism uh, model that isn't uh, very dense as far as participants all in the same place, uh, you know, the outdoors is the place to go. I mean, uh, hike up a mountain. There's very few people there. You know, social distancing automatically happens there, right? Uh, definitely, definitely. It's something that I think more Filipinos, especially everyone stuck at home. <laughs> More Filipinos now are gonna be gonna want to go up the mountains, stay in the sea, stay even in just the local parks. I think are going to be important areas for for I mean local tourism. When I'm in Manila, I because we live in in the Pasay area in Manila, and and I normally run through the whole CCP complex, uh, Rojas Boulevard, all the way to Rizal Park. And it's such a beautiful area. It's so Absolutely. vibrant. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think it's really something that Filipinos miss, you know. I mean, we, we talk about all these beautiful spaces that are like Boracay, Baguio, Mount Pulag, the Cordilleras. But, I mean, just at home, there, there are a lot of these beautiful spaces in Manila that should be expanded, should be, you know, given more importance uh, after this whole thing is over. You know, we always think of Manila as this urban jungle and traffic and you can't walk anywhere. You know, on a, on a Sunday or a Saturday morning, you go to that area, the CCP in front of MOA, and it's just full of people who want to be outside, cyclists, yeah. runners, families. So I think there is, there is 
uh, a need for more open spaces, at least in Manila. You know, definitely, uh, definitely. I mean, it's it's so alive. I, I I really make it a point every time I'm there that I do a run mm-hmm. in that area, even if I'm tired. I'll do a run on a, like a really slow run slog through the area just to see. You know that there's an energy around that area. There's people chatting in, in the mornings. There's cyclists having coffee. You know they, yeah. these are old guys. You know some some of them are maybe in their sixties or something. And there's cyclists are there seeing their friends. There's joggers. There's picnickers in Rizal Park. There was one at one point I remember running and I couldn't get into Rizal Park because there were so many people. <laughs> I just skipped it. But I I think it's a I think it's a, it's about our mayors and our legislators listening and, and just observing and saying, hey, these people are looking for for a space. You know, I mean, what, how many, one of the first problems that they had in PGC was people kept on going out to the parks and running. <laughs> right, <laughs> they, right. They had to arrest people to say, stop doing this. So it seems like after three months of being cooped up, we're, we're really looking for for the wide open spaces. And, and, you know, we're in a country that has a lot of that. Uh, That's true. How do you convert that to a recovery in the tourism trade? Well, I, I'd love to... That's a very interesting topic, eh? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see what the solutions out there could be, you know? Because um, I think there's going to be some interesting people doing really interesting things to, to, to try and push that. Um, a different way... Look... This is very simplistic, but from the early 2000s to the 2010s, the whole idea was Le Boracay, right? That was our... Right, that right. Was Big the, party. <laughs> that was, the, you know, that was the, the coolest thing to do to travel, right? Hey, I'm at Le Boracay, let's party, let's do this. Um, and then it became the Sea of Clouds on Mount Pulang. Everybody was doing that, right? So there's an evolution there. So travel, again, travel goes through trends. Um, but if you look before this whole shutdown happened, if you look at the places that were gaining a lot of traction, you've got Shergao, which is just about the ocean and the beach and very chill. You've got the mountains, you know, Mount Pulag, people climbing. So I think our domestic market of travelers, is has, their tastes have changed. And I think that that's a positive thing. Right. And that's going to be driving the market as well. <laughs> I mean, moving on from this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Remember... The thing, I, I don't know the big numbers, but it seems like whenever you see these large hotel and resort developments, you know, that, that trend of over-tourism, it's almost because it's catering to large groups, low profit margins, but large groups of people, of which the, a lot of are foreign travelers coming in. Right. Um, so maybe if, if these destinations say, hey, look, there is a very important Filipino local market that doesn't you know, travel in groups of 100 or 200, then all of a sudden, a small 20-room resort in Koran is very financially viable, more than a 500-room resort, right? Right. Uh, again, there's, there's... And this goes back to a lot of... I've discussed this with, with people on, the, on, on this podcast and how we can't continuously grow at such an exponential rate. I mean, even with, even with hotels, with... With tourism, I mean, there there has to be some limit to growth, and there has to be, I mean, some some limit to profit as well. You know, I mean, there's always, there's 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 this concept of just enough for us to to live. You know, live a good life and not not necessarily be always driven by continuous profit. 
Yeah, that that's true. Um, but I think, and I, I think I've spoken to you about this. I think though that the the, the DOT had a great campaign uh, late last year about how tourism has transformed, uh, has been very inclusive and participative, and has transformed um, the livelihoods of all these uh, tourism providers from the banquero to the fisherman to the small restaurant owner. Oh yeah, definitely. It's it's it. Tourism is like the biggest value chain out there right. that touches everyone. Right, but again, what are what's the next stage? You know, uh, for example, uh, you can look at the model of Panglao, who opened their international airports, now taking international direct flights. Um, what are the consequences of that? All of a sudden, the tourism investment in Panglao has been very large, two, three, four hundred room hotels to cater to plain loads of people. Um, has that has that meant inclusive growth? Has that meant um, more distribution to more people? Is that sustainable in the long run? The last time I was in Balikasa Island, I used to go and the bankas would be 20, 30 people, you know, which the impact of that was a lot more contained. Now I'm seeing bankas of 50 and 60 people. Wow, that's like a ship. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's absolutely huge and I'm, and I'm not saying you know remember I'm not saying oh we have to keep this exclusive and we have to keep this only for a certain amount because you know I want to be alone I want the ocean to myself nothing to do with that at all but just the mere you know what's the carrying capacity of this tourism destination because once, right. once you surpass that you know uh, it's hard to go back Right, right. Well, that's something to see in the next year or so. What's going to happen? There's, it's really, right now, it's up in the air. But, you know, there's so much opportunity. Uh, I was talking to uh, Michelle Barreto in, in the last episode, and she was saying that there's so much opportunity right now, even though everything is doom and gloom. And there's so much opportunity because it's a... It's an open market. You can do almost anything. And that's something that we can look forward to, maybe, hopefully. Well, you know, one of, one of the things I've always heard about travel in the Philippines is, oh, this place has so much potential. Potential has been a word that I've been hearing about the Philippines for a very long time. Even when foreign writers come here and they say, oh, this Philippines has the potential of being the next it destination in the world. It never quite translates to okay. Now it's arrived. It's always oh, there's potential. There's potential. Right, right. So what is it? What is it that? The first of all, what is it that people see as potential? And second of all, why is that potential never actually converted to its full potential? Yeah, what? That's a really good what's question. Holding us back. Um, I I've been wanting, you know, I'm a hotelier kid, so in my head I. I'm not a hotelier, but, you know, you hear about room rates and overheads and more or less it's kind of bounced around in my head. But truthfully, to travel around the Philippines is very expensive compared to other Southeast Asia. Oh, definitely. I mean, I've traveled around Southeast Asia. The Philippines is probably the most expensive place to travel, except right. for, yeah, I mean, around Southeast Asia, except for Singapore, the Philippines is the most expensive place. Yeah, I mean... Uh, you pay what? Let's say you pay a hundred. Let's use U.S. dollars for equivalents. One hundred and fifty U.S. dollars will get you a so-so kind of hotel, kind of close to the beach here. 
you go to Bali in one not not downtown, but in one of the smaller villages, and you've got a whole villa for yourself. Exactly, exactly. I think I think really we we miss out on providing great value at a great price, and this is one of the reasons that we don't expand our market because we always want the quick buck. And like for instance, in Bali, a thousand pesos in Bali is not equivalent to the thousand pesos here. Right. Like, that's right. If if you if you stay in a thousand peso place in Bali, it's a pretty nice place, you know. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's decent. It's it's really nice. It's it's comfortable. You have your own toilet. Here, a thousand peso place like sometimes is rinky dink, and you know it's not. You don't really get the value for your money, and I think that's one of the things that we're really missing out on developing the tourism industry here. We're we're always out for the quick buck and not really out for the return customer. You just want, you know, the buck now for the customer who doesn't have a choice. No, yeah, yeah, that's true. And sadly, as I travel around, you still see establishments that obviously operate on that principle. But remember, let's take Bali. Bali's been a tourism destination since the 70s. You know, and it was a very concerted government-led effort to say, okay, this island is going to be the number one tourism destination of the country. There will be investment initiatives. There, you know, every major hotel and resort brand around the world has one, two, or three properties in Bali, which means that for the past 30 years that those brands have been operating in Bali, they've also trained the Balinese. So now you have 30 years worth of training from international hotel chains doing these service standards and these design standards. That's second nature there in Bali already. Right. You know, everything there is beautiful. I mean, it's... yeah, yeah. We, we, although we have the best smile and the best people, I think, you know, the travel industry here is still in its infancy. I believe it's in its teenage years. But, you know, you go outside Metro Manila and Cebu, none of the major brands are present. None of the major international brands are present at important scale around the Philippines outside the urban areas. Right? Right. So that means there's something there. If, this country has so much potential, so much, you know, so many great beach locations. These international hotel brands are are seeing roadblocks or are seeing something we're not because we're not in the business. Why haven't they? Why isn't there, you know, a Hyatt in Boracay? Why isn't there? Right. Why isn't there a Four Seasons in El Nido? You know? Right. Um, and, and, and I think that's really good point that you point out that these brands, even though they're these giant, you know, giant brands around the world, and they also serve a different sort of value for locals is in that they actually teach locals a certain standard that needs yes. to be followed, right? Yeah. And, and that, that, that's true. What you say is it doesn't have, we don't have a Hyatt. Oh, well, we used to have a Hyatt in Baguio. So some yes, of our yes. hotels yes, yeah. are, are pretty good. But, but then that translation of the technology, the skill, the standard, isn't translated to others because they only see their neighbors who are exactly the same as them or even lower in standards. And because we don't have these big hotel brands uh, or you know, big tourism brands in the country, in, in the tourism areas, we can't compare ourselves to their standard. And they can't teach us about their standard as well. We don't see it. Absolutely. And, and if you're a young guy from the province and you have talent in the hotel industry, 
you're in Manila or you're in Cebu working for the Peninsula, the Shangri-La, you know, because they can they can pay you a proper wage. Otherwise, you become our number one export, which is the Filipino. You end up outside the country. Again, Filipinos are everywhere. The, I've, I've been to the Sheraton in Aleppo in Syria 15 years. In Aleppo? In Aleppo. And half, reading a book and, and half, half the kitchen staff were Pinoy, man. I mean, they were everywhere. And, and you know, so we have that innate hospitality uh, uh, gene in us, I think. But, you know, we, we also have to learn the skill set. We have to keep up with international standards. And I think a place like Bali or other destinations or Phuket, that's the advantage they have. You know, they have the training, they have the international standards, um, and that seeps into the market. Right, right. And, but I think also one of the things why that doesn't seem to be happening for the Philippines is there's always a lot of pushback against big brands coming into these areas. You know, there's always a lot of, of pushback that says, oh, you know, don't bring in the, the peninsula into, let's say, Boracay because it's going to destroy the island or, or, or things like that, which, <clears throat> which there's always, like, for instance, Sagada. Sagada doesn't want any, and it's not even foreign brands. It's like, Anybody who's not from Sagada can't come to Sagada. So, so what can't set up shop in Sagada? So what happens is they're just looking at each other for ideas, looking at each other for, for essentially the technology and the standards. And, and the standard is, I mean, honestly, pretty low for the, for the price that you pay. Yeah, that, that, I, I have to agree with you. But don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's only international large hotel brands that that can transform our travel industry that's not what i'm saying at all no of course of course yeah. it's healthy to have to have competition but you know it's not just the large brands that can that can wreak havoc on a destination i've seen small resorts owned by locals totally destroy a beach oh for sure <laughs> size size has nothing to do with it i think i think it's about you know proper legislation and proper le- implementation for everybody, local, foreign, Filipino, doesn't matter. These are the rules. Everybody follows the rules, right? And I think there been there have been steps ever since the Boracay closure. I think there have been steps, to be fair, um, of the DOT and the various government agencies to really try and implement uh, these rules regarding construction, sustainability, sewage management. Um, it's it's it has to be done. It has to be done. Right. Right. And that's a that's a extremely good point there that you point out. It it's for everyone. This there has to be rules. There has to be rules that everyone follows, no matter if you're a big company or small company, should apply to all. Yeah, yeah. You know, again to go back to the Bali, the idea of Bali. Um, there are the the Balinese Tourism Development Authority. There has very specific guidelines for hotel developers there. Um, so there has to be a certain percentage of natural material, natural design elements, Balinese design elements that have to be strictly followed. They don't care if you're the W, the Four Seasons, or whatever. These right. are the rules, and these, this is what. That's why you go into a hotel in Bali, and you know you're in Bali. That doesn't right. happen by chance. You know that's a very that's a very that's true. That's true. It really works, though. I mean, yeah. if you go to a big hotel in Bali, or you go to a small, you know, small development that's family owned. You really feel that oh, I'm in Bali. You're in Bali. So. I, I I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here, but we we really should stop. You know, I don't want to go to a beautiful 
Filipino island and feel like I'm in Greece or I'm in right. Greece. Are you talking about this island where no. people fly? <laughs> no, it's it's not one place. It happens. It happens in a lot of places. Surprisingly, you know where. Oh, yeah. oh, we have this beautiful resort, and it's right. from it's the Mykonos of the Philippines yeah, or it's, something it's like inspired that. Inspired by Thailand, and you're like, well, why is it inspired by the Philippines? You know, I mean, right. It goes back, I think, to, to what you say is value. Um, you know, interestingly enough, in in Shargao, one of the one of the magical things of Shargao is is that up to well, recently, is that all the resorts you stay there have a really unique character to them. And none of them are trying to be Greece or Bali or whatever. They're just, they, they, they look very Filipino, sort of simple, indigenous, uh, lo, sorry, local material architecture. And right. strangely enough, a lot of these places, again, are owned by adopted Filipinos. You know, people, foreigners who've lived here many years and fell in love with the island. And they create something that, that looks very much like it's Filipino, part of the island, right? Local material and... It seems to take an outsider to say, hey, this Nipah hut roof construction is really cool. We should do it, right? Right, um, right. It's about seeing the value in, in what we have. and there, But there are, you know, Milo Naval with Siama, and there are resorts that have very quickly recognized that deficit and are creating a very, very nice, very beautiful Filipino style of resort that I think should, it's part of what we want to try to do at Grid, you know? I mean, if you look at our, our magazine, we're not, always constantly featuring resorts just to feature a resort. We're, we're kind of picky. We want to feature a resort that has a reason, that has a design philosophy behind it. And most of the time, the design philosophy we find most inspiring are the ones who take Filipino construction materials and give it a twist. Right, right, definitely. And I think that's probably a good place to end this, um, this, this conversation. It's really, really interesting. And I just have a few last questions for you. Um, this is stuff that I ask everybody. Okay. And so if you had like a photo project, that like your dream photo project with unlimited funds and <laughs> time and access, what would that be? Uh, recently, I've been obsessed with traveling, doing a circum circumnavigation of the Philippines, road, land, uh, land and sea, so, mm -hmm. um, but with a focus on our coastal populations. Ah, that would be interesting. I'd love to spend like a year or something just on a boat, on a motorcycle, all, all modes of transport, and see really the variations in, in, in our coastal peoples, you know, because the Ilocano and the person from the Palawena are, are similar but different. And what their challenges are, because I think, I think the, the 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 battle line for conservation and population control and all our crisis points that we have in this country right now, actually happen at the shoreline. I think that's where where things come to a head. You know, uh, that's that's what I'd like to do. If if anybody's interested in sponsoring sponsoring. Wow, that that would be a really really interesting project to see. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time, though. We have a really long coastline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess that's, that's true. And <laughs> not, not every coastline. But, you know, uh, yeah. I, right. There's something about what's, we, you know, the grid. We've done a grid expedition of the mountains, and we've done a grid expedition of marine conservation. Uh, that's right. But I think it's the shoreline itself 
the, the story gets interesting. Not in the water, not up the mountain, right in the middle. Right, right. Okay. Um, what's the most interesting project you've had in your, your whole career? Oh, crap. Interesting? Uh, well, I think one of the most... Uh, one of the most challenging on a personal level was I was lucky enough to be working with the World Health Organization as soon as uh, a week before uh, Yolanda hit. And we were, I, I was doing other projects for them, for the WHO, and we all got rerouted to help the, to help the recovery in Tacloban and the, in the corridor where Yolanda hit. And that was two years I spent back and forth with the WHO, and that was uh, that was a challenge on a personal level to, to see that and to witness that and to to try and take right. photographs that would would make a difference uh, at any point or document at least what happened. That was that was quite a quite an important project for me. Right. That that I saw some of your photos from that period, and um, they they were I mean they told the story of of the whole Tacloban and rising from the seawater, <laughs> as yeah. it may. Yep. Um, any books that you would recommend? Uh, what are you reading right now? You know, I, I can't get my I can't get my Kindle account to work. But um, <laughs> 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 one of the best books uh, there's an author named Tim Cahill that I love. It, it's all travel stuff for me. Tim Cahill, Packed to Death by Ducks. Pico Iyer was transformative. Uh, Pico Iyer, beautiful. Yeah, I love his work. A very moody teenager in my angsty years. Uh, I loved Pico Iyer. But um, you know, I, I've been con I've been tr I've been consuming articles more more than books recently. Uh, the New York Times and, and other travel pub long form travel publications. Long form. We're All right. Tr I'm trying to see where the long form because the novel's the novel, you know, <laughs> and the novel's found right. place in, in the publication world. Kindle, online publications, audiobooks. Where is that, you know, long-form National Geographic, outside magazine-style article? Where is, it, where is it finding its home? That's what I'm trying to figure out, right? And this is, you know, to try, and, to try and see where good goes from here. Right, right. And last question is, um, any tips you can give to, you know, newbie photographers who are just starting, especially now in this time of crisis? Go to flight school. <laughs> no, um, I, I think you have to make a distinction whether whether you want to keep this as, as, as your hobby which is absolutely valid just there are some hobbyists I know who are incredible photographers incredible photographers better than the pros the only difference between a hobbyist and a pro is that a pro makes his living taking pictures and a hobbyist usually has enough money to do whatever he wants <laughs> because right, right. he uses his living somewhere else once you decide to once you make that decision, if you're going to go pro, then, you know, assist. Assist if, if you have the chance. And I know it's harder to get assisting positions these days, but, you know, there's something about coiling cables, buying coffee, painting floors. Um, not that hard labor has a mystical value to it, but if you're lucky enough to assist for a photographer who's willing to teach, not just photography, but the business aspect of it, um, how to deal with clients, how to manage a set. These are all things you can't learn from YouTube. These are things you have to see in person. So if you can do it, assist. I think it's a really valuable thing to do. So is Paco Guerrero taking a mentorship? Uh, are you giving mentorship to 
people who would like to assist you? You know, I, I just said that and I said, I, I wish I could. My, my main problem is that my, a lot of what I shoot involves getting on an airplane and going somewhere. So the burden of that expense to a client isn't, isn't something I can transfer. But if I'm shooting locally and people have sent me an email or a text or something, I, I try my best to say, hey, why don't you drop by the set? You can observe, you can, you can hang out with the guys. Um, again, I try my best. I, it's something right. I should do more of, but hopefully through the workshops and some of the things I do with, with the, the camera brand Sony that I work with doing mentorships is more of a workshop program, um, is, is a different way of, of giving back to the community. Okay. And where can people find you online? Um, Instagram? Right. So on Instagram, I'm Studio Guerrero. On Instagram, my website is francisco-guerrero.com. You can actually find all my other contact details from the website. All right. Thank you so much, Paco. This has been really, really interesting, really entertaining. And of course, I learned a lot from you. New stuff that I have I didn't know <laughs> that, that you did for the years. Thank you so much. That was Paco Guerrero. And to view some of his work and the work of a lot of other really talented Filipino photographers, please take your time and go and visit Shelter Fund. Uh, you can find it on online, shelterfund.ph, and on Instagram, Shelter Fund on Instagram. And you'll find a lot of really, really fantastic photos that are for sale and will help their industry get back from this COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of them are out of work at the moment. A lot of them are in difficulty and uh, helping them by buying their art, their work will go a long way so that once this is all over, they can come back and they can create once more amazing photographs, uh, amazing work that will add value for all of us. Next week on the podcast, I have Steve Rogers, an expat who has lived in Sagada for practically the last 20 years. He came here as a Peace Corps volunteer and came back and stayed. He has such an interesting story. He's a kayaker. He's a mountain biker. He lives in Sagada now. He's one of those few people who has found Sagada as a home, as a new home for himself and his family. And he has lived a life of adventure as well as uh, observed the Philippines as an outsider looking at what has happened to the country in the last 30 years. Looking forward to that interview and it will come out next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to the Wildcast. And if you enjoyed that episode with Paco and the other episodes of the Wildcast, please subscribe, like, and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Since you're still here, I would like to take this time to give a shout out to some of my favorite companies. This podcast is not sponsored by any of them. I just want to give them a little bit of airtime because they are companies that I value personally and I think that they would appreciate your business in this difficult time. First off is Knitting Expedition, at Knitting Expedition on Instagram. They work with Ifugao women who live in the World Heritage Rice Terraces of Ifugao, knitting some beautiful knitted dolls, homeware, and clothing. Check them out 
they give jobs to women that empower them and allow them to still care for the rice terraces in their homes. Victory Liner, at Victory Liner on Instagram. Probably the best bus service in the Philippines. I've been taking their buses all my life between Baguio and Manila and everywhere around Northern Luzon for that matter. They have been hit hard by the pandemic not having any bus trips anywhere for the past two months. I know having worked with them over the last three years that they care deeply for their employees and staff. They have converted their buses to cargo and shipping between their stations during this time and are still the fastest, most efficient way to ship between Manila and most of Northern Luzon. If you need anything shipped, they are the company to ship with. Due to the need for social distancing, bikes are going to be big if they aren't already. And if you live in Manila, these are the places I would go to to buy my bikes. You want to go to a place that actually knows what they're doing, will tell you what you need, and will help you out. Dance Bike Shop. Uh, you can find them on Instagram, on Facebook. Another is, of course, Maximus Athlete Store in Pasig. And also in Pasig, Xterra Bike Shop, one of the oldest bike shops in the country. Mount Cloud Bookstore, at Mount Cloud on Instagram, one of those few independent bookstores you will find in Baguio City. Mount Cloud is one of those spaces remaining that allow art, Filipiniana books, and amazing storytelling to be told to Filipinos. I have been to this place over the last 10 years. When you want to escape the real world and find a space that will swaddle you in the smell of old paper and get a feel of the old Baguio again. Give them a visit and give them some business. And that's it for this week's episode of the Wildcast. I'll see you all next week for episode 9 of the Wildcast with Steve Rogers. See you next week and keep it wild.